The Lord be with you. It's the final sermon in our series of sermons that we've called Community and Judgment. And uh, this morning we are going to uh, conclude where the series began, and that is with Dr. Green's assertion that Romans is written to a Christian community uh, that is divided or living in the tension that exists over matters of conscience and common sense. Romans was probably written to a community that was comprised of converted Jews and converted Gentiles, and due to secondary issues, I think that's important to say, uh, what we just heard about, some of you believe in eating anything. I wanted to offer a hearty amen at that moment in the reading of the text, because yes, free in Jesus over here. I believe in eating anything. So I love it. People were providing food for us when we first got out here. It was wonderful. And they would ask questions like, is there anything you don't like? No, there is not anything I don't like. Um, This is a community that was divided over these sorts of secondary issues. And how do we walk out our faith? And um, this is not a, a, a section of scripture that's meant to be understood as a commentary on morality and ethics as a whole. I think if we, if we decide to look deeper into the subject, we have to go to places like Acts 15, where James and the elders in Jerusalem offer this concise and very pointed list of behaviors and practices that are clearly unacceptable for a Christian. And then you look at a, a, a text like 1 Corinthians 5, where the same author, Paul, who's writing in Romans, writes to the, writes to the Corinthian Christians, and there was an instance of a, of a man having uh, intimate relationships uh, with a family member. And Paul says, what is wrong with you? How are you letting this go on in your midst? So it's not as if Paul is saying that ethics don't matter or morals don't matter. But there are secondary issues that need to be considered. And uh, the book of Romans is, is really an amazing book. Chapters 1 through 8 offer this incredible sort of panoramic view. It's densely theological. It's densely philosophical. It talks about everything from creation to the story of Abraham. It's wrestling with the theology of how we're justified. It's a very uh, central word in the book of Romans. And Paul, of course, culminates that first half of his letter with that eighth chapter that may be his greatest written work, um, that concludes, of course, with that beautiful section of what can separate us from the love of God and so many other things that are packed in there. And once Paul has, has sort of put this incredible widescreen image in front of us of the Christian faith, he takes a shift in chapters 9, 10, and 11 where he starts to help the Christians in Rome navigate how do we deal with Jews that are, let's just say for lack of a, a better way, unconverted Jews? How do we relate to the fact that there are so many of uh, the children of Abraham who have not recognized Jesus as the Messiah? And what do we do with them? And he goes through these three chapters talking about we need to be humble as followers of Jesus in our respect for those who were original. They were not grafted in and, and that sort of thing. Twelve is where we see this uh, shift take place again. And what's happening is by the time we get here to 14, Paul has now taken this massive bird's eye view of life, reality, Christianity, 
and he narrows it right down into this local community and the way that they are treating one another. In other words, Paul is meddling. Up until this last section of Romans, a lot of the people hearing this letter read over them could have been smiling, yeah, thumbs up, could have, you know, you know those sermons that you can say amen to, real loud, hearty amens, you know how you all do when you wave the towels at people and say, preach on, brother, like that kind of thing? No, okay, but anyway, in some churches are like, you know, you know preach it kind of, right, they've been doing that for like 11 chapters, but maybe let's just say they've been doing it for eight chapters. And nine cha- chapter nine, the amen start to die down a little bit, okay? And then when 12 comes and he says, I'm begging you, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Things start to get very sober. At the end of 13, think about, and we, we, were, we were joking about this before the service, Uh, we have let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, and these great words we use all the time, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not quarreling, right? That's the word, not quarreling or in jealousy. You see, see how Paul works? He starts off with these things that we would never do. We would never revel. We would never get drunk. We would never be debauched. I said that for emphasis, it's not the way. But we're not licentious people, but when suddenly he starts talking about quarreling and jealousy, oh, he might be preaching to me. And he starts off this 14th chapter on this theme of quarreling. Paul is right up in their stuff. We have to be careful that in the exercise of our faith and in the practice of our faith, we don't get so swept up in the esoteric, grandiose themes that are truly beautiful and inspiring themes that we refuse to let the Holy Spirit turn that right into our address, in our house, in our living room, and how we conduct ourselves. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. The Paul of Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That big message suddenly becomes, you who are quarreling and jealous. Remember, they don't read this as chapters. They hear this as a letter, right? Suddenly it's turned in really close. And we have these two groups of people that exist in this community of faith, the weak and the strong, by implication there. The weak are the people who seemingly are devout. They are meticulous in their observance of dietary codes and their observance of some sort of calendar or festivals. What's interesting about this is we know from other readings, the book of Acts will give us good insight into Paul's life where he's keeping certain vows and festivals that are consistent with the Jewish calendar. So Paul, in some way, is not necessarily using weak in a disparaging tone, but he's talking about people who have such rigorous standards for their practices and their formation that it are exp- expressed in the way that they have a diet and the way that they keep their calendar. In a way, we might call them rule keepers. And he's saying, hey, strong people, who are the strong people? And these are different because the the implication here is these are people who have sort of an inward compass. These aren't people that are so much caught up in rules and particularities. These are people who walk and live in a certain sort of freedom 
They have like a flexibility to respond dynamically to life. And so they're comfortable if they're out with somebody, let's say in this particular setting of Romans, if they're out with somebody in the market and they buy meat in the marketplace, these are the sorts of Christians who are comfortable eating this meat. They're not worried if it's offered to idols because they have an inner understanding of God as creator. They have an inner understanding of how the gospel of Jesus Christ has completely changed the nature of reality. So they have this sort of inner strength that allows them to engage life dynamically. In other words, these, if we want to oversimplify for the purposes of today, it's like we have rule keepers on the one side and we have the grace folks on the other side. Have you ever met grace folks and and rule keeping folks? Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? I've lived in both worlds, okay? And what he's saying here is you grace folks, you strong folks, you people who don't really have to focus on rules and regulations, don't invite people close just so you can argue with them and point out how stupid they are for still keeping the rules. In other words, (laughs) for those of you who have been shouting the loudest during the reading of this letter because you understand that faith is, uh, justification is is, uh, uh, acquired, it is received apart from works of the law, For those of you who've been listening to me say that God is for you and no one can be against you. For those of you who have been so caught up in the fact that we have the faith of Abraham... Who were you were he was righteous because he believed, not because he did anything. For those of you who have been caught up in that all the while, you are the ones I'm now talking to. Because your enlightened position, your enlightened understanding places you in a very vulnerable place. You are now positioned to judge people who are not as enlightened as you. Karl Barth refers to these people as the anti-Pharisaical Pharisee. You follow that? In other words, we feel bad, and I mean it with all the condescension I can muster up. We feel bad for all of those ignorant folks who still think that they have to rest on Sunday. We feel bad for all of those legalistic folks who think it's still inappropriate to have a beer. And suddenly we find ourselves, quite ironically, judging those in our community who are not as enlightened, or should I say free, as we are free. And I want to ask a question this morning, rhetorically speaking, are we free enough to actually let people live by their restrictive standards? Karl Barth, whose commentary on Romans is spectacular, he asks this question. And forgive Dr. Barth because he wrote this a long time ago when he was not gender correct. So this is for everybody in the room. Where is the man... This is the question asked of us in the epistle to the Romans. Where is the man who will venture not merely to think the thought of freedom, but actually to live under its guidance? Who will dare to live under the one restriction of God? In other words, when are we going to transition ourselves out of freedom in thinking to freedom in living? When are we going to stop living in the world of concepts and start living in the world of practices? The way that I feel about another person, the way that my attitudes are revealed in response to their actions. 
You see, at some point, I think what Paul is getting at here is in these secondary issues, in the gray issues, in the issues that aren't explicitly listed in Scripture. The issue is not really the practice, the action, but the attitude with which the action is done. Let me say that again. On secondary issues of morality, on gray issues that are debatable, Paul is saying to a community, you're fighting over stuff you shouldn't be fighting over. You're allowing yourselves to be divided over things that should not divide you because the issue is not the action, it is the attitude with which the action is done. So his point is said simply this way. The person who's not eating, they're abstaining. God bless them, I want that anointing. That person who's abstaining, they're abstaining to the Lord. They have the right attitude. Even if it's not technically necessary or it's theologically unenlightened, look at the heart with which they're doing this. And for all the rule keepers who can't understand how you could be a sipping saint, God says, listen, Paul says, listen, Later in the day, that will come in, and you'll be like, ah, later. Paul says, listen, what does he say? He says, they're drinking that to the Lord. That's their attitude, and that's what matters. The question really comes in, why do we judge other people? Why do we do this? There are a long list of reasons, but can I offer you two this morning? One, we forget whose they are. We forget whose they are. Not who they are. Whose they are. When I look at another person and I judge that person, whether they're strong or weak, when I look at them and I judge them, I forget that they are God's. And by extension, they are his responsibility. And on some level, I have to consider the possibility that when I'm judging God's folks, it's because I don't trust God to judge God's folks. When I come to a conclusion and it's final and it's authoritative and I've slammed down the gavel in my heart, am I not on some level saying to God, I didn't trust you to take care of your kids, so I'm going to do it for you? What's interesting is when we forget whose they are, we position ourselves on the bench. We've got the gavel in our hand and somehow we've said, God, you can scoot off. We're going to sit down and do this. But there's another reason we judge other people. The second reason we judge other people is we forget our end. And that is we don't remember that in the end, we will not be sitting on the bench in God's place. We will be standing shoulder to shoulder next to the very people we're judging right now. In other words, we share more in common with those we wish to judge than not. We're more like the people that we judge and dismiss than we're unlike them. Number one, we're creatures just like them. We share a creaturely existence, which means we're limited, we're finite, and we're dependent by default. There's no other way for us to be. Secondly, we are sinners just like the people we're judging. We are filled with self-interest. We are filled with pride. And as we sang this morning, we are prone to wander. 
As it's been said, I believe by Jonathan Edwards, men's hearts do not drift toward holiness. The lazy river of the Christian life does not take you to the throne room of heaven. What's interesting here is that it says here in the text, they will be upheld at the end of verse 4, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Down at verse 10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, Dr. Green is, as many of you in the room know, he's an expert in the theology of Robert Jensen. And Robert Jensen, I think he's the person who came up with this, but at least he's famous for saying that God's name is Trinity. And all the Matrix fans were like, oh, whoa, pretty cool. (laughs) God's name is Trinity. So if I were to take Robert Jensen's instruction, it would read this way. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Trinity. And this is why we are told not to judge. Because God refuses to judge people other than as a community. In other words, God himself is a society of one. And his name is Trinity. So every time God judges, it is a community of three judging an individual. God never stands as one judging one or one judging a group. God always stands as Trinity. He is never not three in one. The judgment of God is perfect for many reasons, but I think maybe at the top of the list is the fact that God will always judge as community. You see, we are prone to stand as individuals and judge entire communities, while God stands as a community and judges each one of us individually. I love the text in Ezekiel 18, which is sort of a... um, a revisit to some of the themes from Exodus. In Ezekiel 18, the Lord says this. He makes it very clear through the prophet that a righteous person will be declared righteous and they will not be held accountable for their parents' actions. It says that the son of a a wicked man will not be called wicked because his father was wicked. Neither will the daughter of a righteous woman be called righteous because her mother was righteous. Each person is going to stand, as it says here, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You see, it's so efficient. When I can stand as one person, I never have to collaborate with other people, and I can pass judgment on an entire group. Isn't that efficient? All of those liberals, right? All of those academics, all of those Catholics, Pick whatever group you want to pick. It's so efficient to just stand there by myself and say, this is wrong and this is right and this is the way it is. But when I have to make those statements as community, things get tedious. When I have to be willing to go through and let each person stand on their own accord, when I have to do that, it takes so much time. 
This is why on Sundays when we gather for corporate worship and we confess things like the communion of the saints, when we confess things, the Nicene Creed, which at some point I'm going to foist upon all of you in this room, it's longer by about one or two minutes if you have extra time. We'll read those extra one or two minutes of creed. I'm being very New York sarcastic. I apologize. <laughs> you got to be somewhere. I don't want to drag it out, but we'll actually read the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed refers to what? The one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Why? Because the only way that we can actually judge in this world is as a community. Any judgment apart from community mars the image of God in the earth because God will only judge us community. Anytime a Christian rises up on their own and enacts judgment, they are defacing the very image of God in themselves. But when we come together as one holy Catholic and apostolic church, there is an image or a sense of community that now gives us the authority to judge that we don't have on our own. I'll go back, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 5. We're not going to turn there. But if you want to read there because you like salacious texts, that's a good one this afternoon to read. Uh, the message might bring a fun angle on that one, I think. Um, <laughs> but what does he say? When Paul talks about judging, he says this. He says, when you have all assembled and my spirit is with you, that's when you judge. Because Paul clearly understands something, and that is to whatever extent our actions are going to look like God's actions. Let me rephrase. Our actions are going to look like Trinity's actions. They're going to be communal actions. They're not going to be individual Lone Ranger acts. You see, God's justice in this regard is strange to us. It is foreign to us. It is not the way we're declined. Our knee-jerk reaction is to just send forth judgment on people because clearly we are qualified to do so. God's justice is strange because God's justice cannot be an individual opinion by virtue of the fact that God is not an individual. God's justice is strange justice in that it cannot be a biased opinion. In other words, God does not have self-interest. God cannot be added to, and therefore he has nothing to gain by judging one way or the other. God's justice is a strange justice in that we usually must wait for it. This is difficult because there's almost like a double injustice when we've been wronged and then we have to wait for God to get his act together and do what we know he should have been doing all along. It's horrible when we've been wronged and our oppressors walk about unscathed. But to the extent that this justice of God is strange to us, it is really divine. Prophet Isaiah describes God this way as having ways that are not our ways. Can I encourage you with one thing this morning? To anybody who's frustrated, confused, confounded, or dare I say annoyed by God, to whatever extent he does all of those things, be comforted because it probably is God. His thoughts 
are so far above our thoughts and his ways are so far above our ways. How could we not be confounded when we're encountering God? How could we not be frustrated at some point? How? How? This is strange justice indeed. And this is why I think James calls us in his letter um, in the fifth chapter there, there's a section that probably slips by a lot of us because we're off to get to the good stuff in James about the prayer, uh, a fervent prayer, accomplishing a whole bunch. But James 5, listen to these, these three verses, starting at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. I stop there for a minute. Let's, I think there's a tendency because of some of the nonsense that goes on in mainstream popular Christianity with novels and movies and the silliness about certain things that are, are happening, uh, certain theologies that have uh, relatively recent theologies that have grabbed people's hearts. We, we sort of don't want to talk about the coming of the Lord in some circles, um, but the coming of the Lord calibrates us in our faith. It's sort of like using a GPS system and refusing to put a destination in. The coming of the Lord is, is what we're putting in our GPS system. This is, this is what we're all moving toward. And I think to the extent that we're not focusing on that is the extent that we're misstepping. And he says, be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from earth, being patient with it until he receives the early and late rains. You also must be, what's the next word? Patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Look at this. Does this sound like what we've been reading in Romans? Do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. See, the judge, Trinity, is standing at the doors. This is the strangeness of it, is that we have to wait, and God is standing there right on the edge, ready to take action. As I was saying before, fundamentalism is very efficient. Fundamentalism is, a, is an approach to faith, whether it's Islam, whether it's Judaism, whether it's Christianity, that is reductionistic. It tries to reduce the bulk, if not all, of the issues into black and white, binary, zeros and ones. This is what reality is. And the fact is, that's just not true to who God is and to the life that we live. But the thing about fundamentalism, if you came up in it like I did, you like it because it's so efficient. I was thinking about this. It's like getting drive-through judgments. Like if you're in too much of a rush, fundamental, it's like the microwave version of judgment. You'll get it quicker. You know before the sentence is finished what's right or wrong. It's quick, it's convenient, and it reduces reality into hard and fast categories. And here's Paul in the midst of these debatable issues, and he's telling them quite clearly, Pay attention to why the people around you are doing things. And to the extent that you can't discern it, that's right. These are heart matters for God to judge. 
I love the fact that the Old Testament reading this morning is in Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, we find the very last chapter of this book. It says, realizing in verse 15 that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story of Joseph and his brothers, Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons. He was his father's favorite And he didn't mind announcing to everybody that he was his father's favorite. His 10 older brothers got understandably irked and annoyed, but to the point that they actually wanted to kill him. Not metaphorically kill him, they wanted to kill him. In the course of the story, he's not killed, but he's sold as a slave. He's lied on, he's forgotten and neglected, He finds himself in prison, and then at the right time, situations arise in which Joseph Joseph is not only brought out of prison, but he's made second in command in all of Egypt, which at the time may have been the most powerful empire in the world. Here is Joseph leading this empire through a time of famine when his brothers, who are dying for lack of food, come back into Egypt, assuming their brother is dead, only to have the announcement that he is alive and he is powerful. He is alive and he is powerful. He is second to Pharaoh, which means there are, there are, there's no Miranda rights here. Come on. There's no trial by jury. Whatever Joseph wants to do, he's going to do it. There's going to be no question. This is not a democratic republic The brothers are kept alive, and when their father dies, something dawns on them. They say, oh, my goodness. I wonder if we've only been kept alive because Joseph did not want to break dad's heart. But now that our father is dead, this man with basically unlimited power is almost certainly going to kill us. In verse 16, so they approach Joseph saying, Your father, isn't that such strange? I would have been like our father. I would have been like, not you, like ours. We're in this together, Joseph. We're family. No, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I think they're lying here, but anyway. (laughs) I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers. I wonder if they delivered this like real dramatically. Dad said, I beg you, Joseph. He looked into the camera. Forgive the crime of the, of the servants of the God of your father. Look at this. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. That tells you a lot about Joseph's heart, right? I would not have wept, but it must have been an awkward time of weeping. You're standing there watching this man who can kill you. Your life could be over in the next 10 minutes, and he starts crying. He's not saying anything. He's just crying. That awkward pause. It's interesting, and the next line is, his brothers also wept. I would have been crying with him, I think, at that point, wondering what is about to happen to me. This man has got the goods. He's going to take us out. They fell down before him, and they said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. And here is our question from Romans. 
Am I in the place of God? Paul asks the question, who are you? Well, I can tell you who I'm not. I'm not Trinity. Am I in the place of God? In verse 20, even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. Two very quick thoughts here, because this text is a sermon in itself. A, Joseph was truly free to not judge his brothers because he understood the purposes of God cannot be thwarted by the injustice of men. God's purpose was to sustain the descendants of Abraham so that they could be a great nation in the earth. And just because Abraham's 10 grandsons, great-grandsons, went buck wild and lost their minds, Joseph knew you can't stop God. You meant it for evil, the old version would say, but God meant it for good. B, Joseph was free to not judge because he understood that these 10 men he was looking at were the realization of God's covenantal promises that were made to Abraham. In other words, who was he to judge these men of promise? He's only the second in command in Egypt. You see, The God of heaven and earth, Yahweh, trumps Egypt every time. Jehovah is greater than the United States of America. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has jurisdiction that cannot be overruled. It doesn't matter if you're second in command in Egypt, Joseph. You don't have the authority to speak over the realization of God's covenantal promises. In other words, Joseph's authority in Egypt did not transfer into the covenant with Abraham. Who am I? I'm only Pharaoh's number two guy. I can't speak to Abraham's seed. And in this, we see Jesus. Because Joseph not only refuses to judge, but he promises to bless. The blessing that Joseph offers his brothers is to take care of them and their children. But Jesus is the true and better Joseph who not only forgives us, his brothers and his sisters, of the violence that we have done against him. He not only promises to take care of us, but listen, he invites us to share in his power with him. And to share in the glory of his kingdom with him. It's something Joseph could never do. But Jesus has done to all of us, to them who believe he gives the power to become the children of God. And this Jesus is the one we're waiting for. This Jesus is the one we're looking for. And this coming 
Jesus gives us cause to pause before we singularly step out and judge other people. More than this, in the crucifixion itself, we see the epitome of strange justice because the one who's on the cross is the one who doesn't deserve to be there. He is the spotless, sinless lamb of God who doesn't deserve a public execution reserved for slaves. What's interesting about the cross is that it is a sort of negation It is a destruction. It is divine vengeance, if you will. But it's a destroying that takes place in order to reestablish. The simplest way I can put it is God's justice is strange in that when it's enacted, it's a death, it's a destruction that brings new life or resurrection. In other words, for God, judgment is never the end of a thing. For God, judgment is always the end of a bad thing so a good thing can emerge. It is the end of a destructive thing so that a life-giving, abundant thing can emerge. That's what God's judgment is. It's strange to us because for us, judgment puts a bad thing to rest. God's judgment puts a bad thing to rest and a new thing to life. And I'll leave you with this thought from Fleming Rutledge, whose book on the crucifixion is absolutely incredible. It's quite simple. God's judgment is the servant of his love. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, this morning, We sit here, some of us weak and some of us strong. Some of us feel compelled, impelled to embrace practices and limits on our lives. Some of us feel released and free. Lord, I pray for all of us, no matter weak or strong, that our love for you and our love for neighbor would rise up inside of us this morning. Our trust for your goodness, our trust that you do all things well, would release a patience in us. We don't need to judge. Who are we to judge? But more than anything, God, I pray that as, as we enter into this trusting patience that a new capacity for community would be released in us God forgive us for allowing our judging hearts our preferential hearts our opinionated hearts from keeping us separate from one another I pray that we would realize we have more in common with one another than we don't Bring us together, knit our hearts together as we trust you to judge with your strange, delayed communal judgment. As we trust you to judge, may that free us to love one another as we love ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.